Hold your slime for you and I'll give it to you after services. At least you're not throwing slime at me as I'm preaching. It's good to see everyone that is here this morning. It's good to see new faces in the audience. As always, we, we welcome you here to our services and we hope you find us to be a friendly people and that um, you stick around. We have a chance to get to know you. And let me encourage our members here as well. Greet people that you don't know and people that you think maybe you should have known already, but you don't quite know for sure. You'll never go wrong just walking up and talking to people and, you know, making them feel welcome. So please greet people after services and let them know that you are glad that they're here. Got a lot going on this weekend. Um, we have, of course, our services right now. Right after services, we have Kids Day in the Fellowship Hall. If you have preschool, elementary age, or even high school kids, um, stay after and go to the Fellowship Hall. And the Jim Robinson Care Group is hosting a luncheon there, and we'll eat lunch together. And then the kids will go to a, a brief class while the adults um, have some time kid-free. And it's also going to be a time where we'll talk about the Lads to Leaders program in the congregation. Then at 2.30 is the services at the Valley Christian Home in Hanford. That's a convalescent care facility there, and we, um, every so many weeks, um, um, organize the worship service at that um, location. You usually meet here about 2 o'clock in the church parking lot and carpooled over there, and, or you can drive directly there, and we'll have worship services there at 2.30, and then we'll come back and have worship services here tonight, this evening. So a lot of opportunities to get involved um, today, and then throughout the upcoming weeks, we have a lot of neat events coming up here in the congregation. You know, as you look through the life of Christ, and you, you read through some of the things that he talked about. Of course, Jesus um, spent a great deal of time talking about loving thy neighbor and, and reaching out to the less fortunate, and Jesus um, healed people, he, he fed the hungry, he casted out demons, and all these wonderful things for people, and, and so often we think of Jesus as, as a messenger of love and of peace and of hope, and 100% he was. But he also, at times, preached a message they would probably be categorized as kind of the, the old-fashioned hell, fire, and brimstone kind of message, too. He made statements like this one in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3 where he says, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, you will all likewise perish. That's pretty harsh, right? I mean, that's, that's cut and dry. You can't mix that up. You either repent and live or, live or don't repent and perish. Jesus also spent a great deal talking about judgment, the reality of Judgment Day and that the, you know, the dead will come forth, the good to everlasting life, and those that did wicked deeds to, to punishment. Jesus talked about judgment. Jesus talked about you know, repentance and hell and fire. He talked about things that weren't always that pleasant. Now, his demeanor was not a demeanor that would be characterized as perpetually angry. No, there was times when he got upset, though. And when he does, it definitely... We need to pay attention to it because it's out of character of the normal, loving, compassionate Lord. Now, at the same time, it is loving and compassionate to preach about these things. But notice here, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 12, you have Jesus speaking to the church in Pergamum. And he refers to himself as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. That's not the way we normally think of Jesus. If you Googled images of Jesus, of course they're all speculative, but usually you got Jesus holding a lamb, Jesus with children, Jesus smiling, Jesus eating with his disciples. Here you have Jesus with a sword. Here you have warrior Jesus. Here you have angry, powerful Jesus. Well, what would make Jesus 
bear this sword. Well, this morning we're going to look at that, and we're going to be studying through, we're going to continue our study of the book of Revelation, specifically what we've been doing for the last several weeks is we've been looking at seven letters to seven churches for the book of Revelation. And if you remember, the book of Revelation was written around the year 100 A.D., so we have some time now removed from Jesus' time on earth. If he's crucified to early 30s, now you have uh, you know, 60 years, 70 years later, you have this revelation being given to John, and John, right now when he gets this revelation, is exiled to the island of Patmos. And this is kind of a unique scene, because picture, if you would, John. Historically speaking, all of the other disciples of the Twelve have already died. And history records that they were all put to death. They died martyrs' death. So now you have John. John is left alone. Now, he's not alone in the sense that he doesn't have Christian brothers and sisters, but of the original apostles, he's the only one left. And because of his preaching, he is exiled to an island to live there. He's old, frail, and yet it's the Lord's day, and Jesus speaks directly to him. When was the last time I wonder that happened? When was the last time like a vision like that took place in his mind or in the mind of the other apostles? I imagine John kind of had a lonely existence at this time. But Jesus comes to him and he reveals the book of Revelation. And specifically, the book of Revelation contains seven letters written to seven churches in the region of Asia Minor. It would be like modern day Turkey. And the key word of the book is overcome or victory. And ultimately the theme is that the wicked will lose and the righteous will win. I imagine that's a message that John needed to hear as he's exiled in his um, old age there to that island alone, as he seems to be fighting this mission alone, and now it's the Lord's day and he receives this vision. He's told that the righteous are going to be victorious. Now the letter tells us in chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis and the Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. We've discussed where those churches were located. And today we're going to specifically be looking at the church in Pergamum, a church, and if I were to summarize it up, the title I came up with was The Church in Pergamum or a Bunch of Rebels Without a Cause. And here's why we'll say that we'll break it down here this morning. As you look at Revelation, though, chapter 2 and verse 12, if you haven't already turned there, please do so. But in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, you have this letter to the church in Pergamum. Last week we talked about Smyrna, and the week before that we talked about the church in Ephesus. Historically speaking, though, during the time of Christ, the city of Pergamum uh, was about 60 to maybe 150,000 people. It was a very affluent city. It was a city that had riches. It had magnificent structures and altars and buildings. In fact, there in Pergamum, there was the temple of Zeus was there, as well as the temple of Dionysus. It wasn't a moral city. Because as we talked about this morning in our Bible class, the idolatrous worship of these pagan gods oftentimes, majority of the time, involved engaging in immoral activity. It would be with cultic prostitution and things like that. It would involve drunkenness. It was not, you know, it wasn't a conservative church service by any means. That's what was going on here in Pergamum. 
Uh, a preacher by the name of Mark Driscoll wrote this about it. He said, this was a bit of a party town. This was kind of the Vegas of the region. And the people would come here to do things that they quite frankly shouldn't. I thought that was a good way to put it. You know, the whole, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happened in Pergamum stays in Pergamum kind of mentality is what was going on there. It wasn't a godly city. And yet, in the middle of this ungodly city, you have Christians. Verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum write. Now, we talked about already that the idea of the angel of the church probably isn't guardian angel. Maybe it's a word for messenger. Maybe he's writing it to an elder or a preacher there. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. Jesus immediately, as he reveals this letter to John, wants the church in Pergamum to pay attention. He says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, a sword that's a weapon of battle, a weapon of warfare, a weapon of, of a power, here Jesus is yielding it. Why? Brother Ford Wallace put it this way, he says, the sword is an instrument of war, hence Christ threatened to wage war against the church in Pergamus because of the evils within it, with the weapon designated here, the sword of my mouth. If you skip ahead to verse 16, it says that. He says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is angry Jesus right now. This is turn over the tables in the temple, Jesus. This isn't the come unto me all that are laboring and are heavy laden and I will give you rest, Jesus. Now we know they're all the same guy, but right now Jesus is upset and he wants them to understand that he's upset. He comes in guns a-blazing and says, pay attention, church in Pergamum, because I have a message for you. And here's what he tells them. He says, I know where you dwell. Now we're going to talk about where they dwelled here in a moment, but that phrase by itself, I know, that can be a good phrase or a bad phrase when it comes to Jesus. Jesus knows you. He knows your life. He knows your thoughts. He knows how you live. He knows what you do. He knows what you say. Jesus says, I know. And the one who comes in with the sword says, I know, that gets a little bit scary. You know, if parents come in with the bell and says, I know what you've been up to. Uh-oh. Right? You're in trouble. Here Jesus comes in with the sword. And he says, I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Now, this is an interesting fact in history. He tells them, I know where you dwell. And there in Pergamum, there was an altar there, a huge altar to Zeus. And it actually had a bunch of worship going on to all sorts of, of Greek gods and goddesses there, but primarily to Zeus. There's a good chance that when Jesus makes that statement here, I know where you dwell, that you dwell where Satan dwells or where Satan's throne is, he might be referring to that very thing. Now, there's a couple different theories on this. Of course, Domitian, the emperor, was also worshipped there. It could be that he's referring indirectly to Domitian, figuratively as the devil. Hear my words here and all this. He's not saying the devil literally lives there. Okay, The devil roams about the earth looking whom he may desire. Um, devour, sorry. Um, but, and when you look at Revelation, you see a lot of symbolism and, and, and that kind of side of things. So here he says, I know where you dwell, where the temple or where the throne of Satan is. Think of that figuratively. But he could be figuratively referring to the fact that idolatrous worship was so prevalent 
in that community, it was like the very altar to Satan was there. A throne to Satan. You know, they had a throne to Almighty Zeus there in their city. He says, no, I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. That's how bad God views idol worship, false worship, false gods. That's how evil it was that he refers to it indirectly here as the throne of Satan. They would have Zeus on his figurative throne. He says, no, you're worshiping the devil. Is Zeus or the figure of Zeus necessarily Satan? No, but anytime you're not serving the one true God, you're serving the devil. Historical fact, though, I found this kind of interesting, and it's kind of the Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of interesting to perk my attention on this. This Pergamum altar, historically, it was destroyed later on, and in the late 1800s, um, German archaeologists and others from Europe unearthed it. And they took it, a lot of it, stone by stone, and took them into museums and things. And in Germany, in the early 1900s, they had a museum to um, Pergamos, and specifically the Pergamum altar, because of how magnificent it was. Yes, it was to an idol god and evil and bad, but it was a pretty magnificent feat, archaeologically speaking. So they had a museum to it. Here's where it gets even weirder and more Indiana Jones-like. A Nazi... Um, or Nazi archaeologist and Nazi architect when designing the Nazi parade grounds based it upon the Pergamum altar. Now that's dark and scary to me, okay? I'm not getting all these weird conspiracy theories and that Hitler's on the throne of Satan and all of that, but if I'm an architect, I don't design something out of what was an altar to an idol god that Jesus might call the throne of Satan, which then you get all weird. You're like, wow, it's the throne of Satan. Then you got Hitler standing on top of it, German troops there on that very same kind of altar designed after those stones. I got way into that last night looking at all these pictures. It's really interesting stuff, and it gets dark and scary. Don't overthink that because even our government buildings are modeled after Roman architecture and all of that. But... It was interesting to me that you have this item there in Pergamum referred to as the altar of, of Satan or the throne of Satan and then in evil Nazi Germany. They modeled something after that. That's where they're living. That's where the Christians are living there in Pergamum. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So they're not living in a very godly place. And in the midst of this ungodly place, you do have Christians. It says, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. So can Christians exist even in the middle of a place that's referred to as Satan's throne? Yes, you can. So don't make excuses. Well, it's so evil out here on the West Coast. California's gone so bad. It's not the way it was when I was growing up, on and on and on. Boo-hoo, they existed in Pergamum, and Jesus says Satan's throne is there. We have no excuse, right? So here he says, there you hold fast to my name, and you did not even deny my faith. And it gets worse. He said, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. Where? Where Satan dwells. Because in this idolatrous culture that had altars to idolatrous gods that referred to as Satan's throne, you had a Christian named Antipas. Not Herod Antipas. Don't confuse him at all. Here you have a Christian named Antipas, and he's only mentioned here in Scripture. But you know what he's talking about when he mentions Antipas? His history records this for us. Antipas was a godly Christian who preached um, the message of the gospel, did miracles, and so on. And he was associated with the church in Pergamum. So he's a preacher there in Pergamum. And you know what happened to Antipas? He got cooked alive 
inside of a bronze cow. Yeah, they burned him alive inside of a... That's even Wikipedia fact, okay? So Cliff's not making this up. It's all out there. It's historical fact here. Now, not that Wikipedia is always accurate, but you understand what I'm saying. History records this fact that this Christian, he probably didn't look like that and have a halo, but he was burned to death or cooked inside of a bronze cow, an idolatrous god, basically probably as an offering to Zeus or somebody else there. That's going on in that city. Oh, not a nice place to live. Hey, let's all move and do a church plant in Pergamum, right? Doesn't go real well. But yet there's people there even in the midst of that, that are holding fast to the name of Christ. So there's faithful Christians there, and those faithful Christians are doing good. But I thought Jesus was mad. Jesus says, I'm coming at you with my sword in my mouth. He, here he's complimenting them. He says, you dwell in a bad place, and you're holding fast to my name, and you even didn't quit, because when the preacher starts getting boiled alive, that's when I kind of give up, probably. Okay, But here they did it. They held fast to his name. Well, what's the problem? Why is Jesus upset? He says, I have a few things against you. And it's not a casual, I got a few things you need to work on. No, 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 no. It's, I have a few things against you. What does he have against him? He says, because you have some there, this is verse 14, who have hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. The story of Balaam, although we don't have a lot of information about it there in the Old Testament, we have a chapter or two devoted to it in Numbers, later on you have a lot of references to Balaam as an example of evil. Long story short, Balaam, besides the whole talking donkey thing and all that that we always think about, Balaam is an example of greed Balaam is an example of using sexual temptation to try to get other people to sin. Bad, bad stuff, right? He says he was a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and he caused them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit immorality. You summarize it up, he is a sin of rebellion, motivated by greed, that resulted in others giving in to sexual sin. That's what was going on in Pergamum. You have rebellious Christians who are greedy, who want religion that fits what they want, not what God wants. Maybe they're being influenced by the false gods of their community. And what are they doing? They're giving in to immorality and to fornication. And yet, they're still claiming faithfulness. In fact, they would still hold their head up high and go, you know, we didn't give in. We've never bowed before the altar of Zeus even when Antipas was burned alive, yeah, but you are giving in to all sorts of sin behind closed doors. You are giving in to the same kind of sins that we mentioned back with the church in Ephesus. They're giving in to the teachings of the Nicolaitans or Nicolaitans. These individuals, those that the church in Ephesus hated, the church in Pergamum is embracing. On the surface, I believe they looked faithful, but behind closed doors... Maybe they were heading down to that temple of Zeus. Maybe they were walking up that steps of the throne of Satan to engage in immorality. Yes, there's Christians there. And yes, a few of those Christians were faithful, but I think we get from the book right here that most of them were not. Most of them there in Pergamum were claiming faithfulness while they were living in open rebellion. And that's why Jesus says, I've had enough. Look at verse 16. 
Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. And it's not that I'm going to come visit you. It is to make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is angry. Jesus is upset at these these Christians because although they claim faithfulness, they're living lives that aren't faithful. They're living lives of complete rebellion to God. A rebellion that is shaped by the actions of their society, but a rebellion ultimately that comes from the inside out of not desiring godly things, but desiring fleshly things. So let's ask the question, because this has to apply to us too, because it's there in Scripture, and it's written for our learning and so on. So can we be guilty of the very same? Is it possible that we can fall into the same sins of the church in Pergamum? Yes, many of the Christians there didn't deny Jesus publicly in the face of persecution. I imagine that if you held a a sword to them and said, do you believe in Jesus? They would probably say yes. They were proud of the fact that they remained even when Antipas was killed. But could it also be that some of these same Christians, although publicly were claiming faithfulness, and on the surface appeared faithful that privately they were denying Jesus by their actions. See, this is the bigger sin that I think we struggle with as Christians. We don't struggle with the outward things. We, we, are, we do a pretty good job of fooling everybody out there that we're faithful and dedicated all the time. We, we can play the part very well, which is our youth forum topic of study here in a month. But these Christians here, I think we're struggling with practicing in their private lives what they preached. I think these Christians here probably were engaging in maybe what we would call secret rebellion. They're not going to flat out say, there is no Jesus. No, no, no. You pin him down, they'd say, of course there is. You need to follow him. We shouldn't deny him. We should be faithful. But these are the same Christians that when no one's around, when no one knows, or at least they think no one is watching, they live a life completely different than what they're professing. These are the the Christians that when church services are over, they go back home to mistreating their families. These are the Christians that after services are over, go back to to the computer to view inappropriate material online. These are the ones that when it's time to, to take down the facade are cheating on their spouse. These are the ones that are engaging in sexual immorality here according to Revelation chapter 2. A life of secret rebellion. Maybe they're walking up the steps to that temple of Zeus late at night when no other Christians are around and engaging in in sexually immoral behavior. That's what the church in Pergamum was guilty of. They were rebelling. They were going down the path of Balaam to commit acts of immorality. They're holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, with all the teachings of that world, we don't understand, but we do know that part of their teaching incorporated immorality. So they're living a secret life that is immoral, while yet on the surface, they're moral and holy and upright. That's why Jesus says, therefore, repent, change, before it is too late, because I'm about to make war with you with the sword of my mouth. And here's how he concludes this letter then in verse 17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of hidden manna. Remember, the manna was the food that rained down on them in the wilderness that provided them sustenance. He says, if you repent, if you overcome, I'm going to give you spiritual nourishment. He says, and I will give him a white stone representing purity, and on that stone will be written a new name, which no one knows except he who receives it. I don't think he's saying that in in eternity you're going to get a special name or anything like that, but I think what he's saying is this. There's a change that needs to take place. We as Christians are supposed to live changed lives. When we are baptized into Christ, what's that referred to as? A new birth. We are born again. It's a time of transformation. Regeneration is what happens. You think about in Scripture, so many people when they change to follow God, they got new names. Saul became Paul. Abram became Abraham. But you know, even Peter, often we see him referred to not as, as Cephas anymore or Simon, but as Peter. Here he says, you will receive a new name that no one knows except he who receives it. You summarize it all up. It is repent before it's too late. If you want these blessings, change now because the road that you're going down is not good. So as we summarize up then the church in Pergamum, yes, they stood firm, but not always. They didn't always stand firm when it came to their faith. Hypocrisy, sexual sin, Greed, just like it did with Balaam, will lead to condemnation. And when Jesus comes with the sword of judgment, it's not going to be good for those who don't repent. So let's make one more application to us, and then the lesson is yours. You know, we started off with that phrase in verse 13 where Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I asked you the question this morning What does Jesus know about you? See, he knows everything. He knows things about me that you don't know. He knows things about you that no one else knows. He knows things about you that even your spouse doesn't know. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind. He knows what you do when the lights are off. He knows what you do when no one's around. He knows what you do when you think no one is looking. He knows the good that you do, which is great. But he also knows the things that you do that are wrong. He knows the loving thoughts that you have in your mind and the care you have for others. But he also can know the contempt and the hatred and the anger. He knows that you're here in worship, but he also knows if you'd rather be someplace else. Jesus knows all. Here he knew the real Pergamum. To the outsider, maybe they look like a bunch of faithful Christians, but Jesus knew who they actually were, and he says, repent or else. The lesson is yours this morning. Do you need to repent? Are there changes that you need to make in your life right now? Is there someone that you need to apologize to? Is there someone whose forgiveness you need to seek? Is there forgiveness of God that, of course, you need to seek? Is there confession that needs to take place because you can't bear this burden anymore on your own? Is it time for you to repent and come to Jesus and follow Him as Lord by being baptized into Him? Jesus knows all. Jesus knows. What does He know about you? The lesson is yours. If you have a need, why don't you come forward as together we stand and sing.